is chilling. Truth. And that's why I just tightened up my mother. I didn't feel that I had to face what I had done ever. He killed 33 times. I'm a king, man. I decide who does what and where they do it at. Next time you see me. One. Okay. Are you ready? My hands never leave too far from my body. Like I'm always ready. To yeah, clap. but I've, I've, cla- I've said the one, two, three before. Yeah, but I can be didn't. like way out here and still be ready. Like th- that's as All far right, as I can right be there. away Let's from see. each other. Okay. Yeah, let's see. All right, you ready? Yeah. One, two, three. <laughs> it's too slow down low. That took way too long. Shut the fuck up, dude. It was great. All right. I'm surprised you haven't acknowledged my computer glasses yet. I feel I was nervous. Oh, I, I felt like you were I, gonna make fun of me. No, I definitely have. I just decided not to say anything. I mean, that's very I, kind of you. Actually, you know, uh, I'm fortunate. Everybody in my family wears corrective lenses. I was blinded out of my right eye when I was a kid, and the muscle grew back. I have 20/20 vision. Like I don't need glasses or anything. That's a that's a very Henry Lee Lucas injury that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. His brother stabbed him. Yeah, yeah, no, they're not corrective. They're just like they're like uh, what do you call it? like the blue light or whatever? Like oh yeah, me, a lot like, of students. Yeah, a lot of students yeah. were buying those because of the online learning. Said it yeah, because I this is a lot of research I've been doing. Um, it's really interesting. Have you read over it at all? I doubt you have. Cause no, not at, not at all. I like to be surprised. Yeah, I like no, I like I like to read and then find your grammatical mistakes like in real time. Yeah. So also, I feel like you learn with the listeners. Yeah. No, I like that. Like I'm. Uh, yeah. I, like I'm in no way contributing to this. I'm just. I get to be. I'm the fan that gets to hang out on set. Really. <laughs> like. <laughs> You're the- you're yes. the ultimate groupie. Yeah. yeah, you just you let me uh, participate in activities. It's great. I like it. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. But while we're on the subject of fans, I do want to give a shout out to Carissa, who is our first patron on Patreon. She pledged what? five bucks. So Thank you. now we have to now we have to do more work though. That's awesome. Yeah. So. Now we gotta aim to please. Make sure Fuck. that we can continue to satisfy. So. Thank you. But I for, know her like jumping on board. I know her in real life. Like I she didn't just hey, like dude, find it. It don't matter, dude. So That's it's... hey, word of mouth. Like it starts with friends and family and then it moves out. So still She great. also bought a t-shirt. What? I don't even have a t-shirt. I want one. I don't even have a t-shirt and I designed the fucking thing. I like it. I need to buy one. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. We've been talking for two and a half minutes already. We haven't even introed. Yeah. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the story of Stephen and Carrie Stainer, which is, man, it's crazy. So it's going to be a pretty long series. Uh, I've been reading a book. Well, I read it a long time ago because I started this research a while ago. But it's called In the Name of the Children, an FBI Agent's Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators. Mouthful of a title, but it's by Jeffrey L. Reinick. Uh, the The stories that he tells, dude, are some of the most... Brutal, bizarre, and just, like, gut-wrenching stories of children who have been, like, severely neglected, uh, severely abused, or just straight-out murdered. And, uh, honestly, the fact that he hasn't killed himself is unbelievable because some of the things he was talking about, because I listened to the audiobook of it at work, uh, some of that shit brought tears to my eyes, and I'm just a fucking reader, so I can't imagine uh, being the one who's actually investigating uh, investigating all the shit. But anyway, it's an incredible book. It's great. You can find it on this app called Scribed, which is going to be a game changer for the show. And this is not a paid sponsorship. I just want to talk about them because they're great. It's uh, They have a ton of books, a ton of audio books. Uh, I actually just found the uh, biography of Gigi Allen on there. So, Dude, I listen to a lot of I Hank Williams III, so yeah. Yeah, I want to do that in the future because that dude is nuts anyways so um but in chapter seven uh he talks about uh the story of carol julie and sylvina which is a case he worked uh and then i was i read another book uh 
This is the other source for it is called Murder at Yosemite, the stunning true story of a horrific handyman and the brutal murders of four nature lovers. These guys really title their books with like a lot of detail, which I guess is good. But um, anyway, it's 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 crazy because Steven Stainer was kidnapped when he was seven years old, held for seven years. He managed to get away when he was 14. His older brother goes on to be a child predator and a murderer, which I feel is just so contradictory to what his brother went through. And I just thought it would it'd be cool to cover both of them. So we're going to start with Steven Stainer. And most of this information comes from Murder at Yosemite. And then majority of the... Inf- I kind of took bits and pieces of both books for... Carrie Stainer's part, but Murder at Yosemite pretty much opens up talking about Stephen Stainer's uh, kidnapping and everything. So, yeah, welcome to the Chilling Truth. I'm Corey. That's Johnny. I just realized I didn't say this yet. So, <laughs> right. I thought it was still <laughs> anyway. You good? Yeah. So let's uh, let's start with Stephen Stainer here. So, uh, as you've already said, Stephen was only seven years old when he was kidnapped. Um, This was through a predator's ruse while walking home from school one day in 1972 in Merced, California. I hope I'm saying that right. Merced. 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 Yeah, that's how the audiobook said it at least. Cool, cool. All right, so... We're bad at pronunciations, and luckily nobody calls us out. Look, phonetic uh, rules do not apply to names and places, so I don't feel bad. Or this show. (laughs) Fuck off with your proper word (laughs) sayings. So Merced (laughs) uh, was about 70 miles southwest from uh, Yosemite. Kenneth Parnell, a real piece of shit, basically, and a convicted sex offender, had more or less hired a mentally challenged boy who was by the name of Irvin Murphy to approach boys walking claiming to be a minister looking for donations uh, for his church. Dude, I tried so hard to, like, make sure I made the description of Irvin Murphy PC, because I know that, like, you're real particular with oh, that absolutely. kind of stuff. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. so I didn't want to put, like, anything crazy. And, yeah, a side note, I've been reading a book about uh, Gary Heidnick, who kept women in his basement mm-hmm. uh, for a few months, and that dude throws around the R word in that book significantly, like... Well, I mean, rough. given the times too. So, like, uh, you know, yeah, this, I, I understand like how 70s, an author so. has to like set the the setting, the stage. So, yeah, it's a uh, even set. Man, I just came from Texas. It's still a commonly used word. That and the N word. Yeah, so well, I'm talking like kind of Tarantino N word type of you know right. Count, so it's pretty pretty. Well, and before we continue, I think everybody should know that anybody with a mental disability has the potential to easily be manipulated or coerced into shitty behavior. Oh, absolutely, yes. uh, So let's not hold it against this boy too, too much. Um, And that goes with any serial killer we've covered because most of them come from a shitty foundation where they were either abused, neglected, um, and it it, it just snowballed into this behavior that lacked any kind of direction so yeah absolutely so not that what they did is okay no not at all it's just something to try to understand while you are passing judgment and conviction and whatnot so only god can judge me motherfuckers (laughs) well steven's family was said that steven's family was mormon um uh, there's a lot of information about there uh, out there about Mormons if you're not too familiar with it. But this ended up being a bad thing Ooh, for yes. Stephen. <laughs> uh, when Murphy approached Stephen in a van and asked him if this uh, if his mother would like to make a donation to his church, Stephen assumed she would, of course, because charity was part of the Mormon faith. Stephen noticed another man in the van, the one driving. He found out his name was Ken. So that evening, Ken stopped and made a phone call. He told Stephen everything was okay, and his mother said he was going to live uh, with Ken now. He told Stephen his mother, Kay, and his father, Dell, didn't want him anymore, and they couldn't afford him with their five other kids. He even said that they awarded custody of Stephen to Ken from now on. And this is not foreign uh, for, you know, in my line of work, a lot of parents with uh, children living with uh, specific or special needs... Um, 
they feel overwhelmed and they don't know how to take care of them, so they feel better. Oh no, yeah, it's very or, common. But yeah. th- that's not what happened. Ken lied. But right, right, right. Uh, just last night, I was reading an, uh, a story about. Uh, this lady whose daughter had down syndrome when she was born and she was like well i'm gonna do the right thing you know like i'm gonna take care of her and now this the mom is in like her fucking 80s and the down syndrome daughters in like her 60s and literally the mom was like i didn't think she was gonna live this long she's like so burdened by it and it's really sad that right like it's that much work well and that's why most most kids with uh, disabilities, once they graduate, oftentimes before, of course, through grade school, this happens, but oftentimes after secondary education. So once they graduate high school, and they can go until they're 21, uh, once they graduate, if they are not uh, equipped with the life skills that uh, are necessary for employment or any kind of, like, just independent living, they typically end up in group homes. Because, you know, yeah. their parents yeah. get like older. state-run things that are, like, crazy underfunded yeah, and yeah. shit. Or and they're, they're just not really the best expensive on the so. Yeah. So, um, Kay and Dell became aware their boy was missing on December 4th when he didn't come home from school. They did the usual asking neighbors, Stephen's friends, and playmates if they had seen him. Uh, with no avail, they contacted the police depart, uh, department to report that he was missing. Uh, the police were told to be on the lookout for a wandering seven-year-old when he hadn't been found. And I found... know that, like, this, it sounds crazy that they were like, oh, he's seven years old, he can walk home. But you gotta think, this was fucking, what, like the 1960s? Yeah, kids like, at that age played until the sun went down, and, you know, it was normal to yeah, see a like, seven-year-old, you know, walking down the street. So No, but it was also prime time for a fucking pedophile. Oh, absolutely, but that's why hitchhiking led to serial killers, you know, uh, heyday, you know. It was easy to pick up strangers or whatever. So, uh, when he hadn't been found by the morning of the 5th, uh, the officers pondered uh, with the likelihood that Stephen had been abducted rather than, you know, walked off. This was the thought on Kay and Dell Stainer's mind as well. Uh, seeing as how the Stainers were not wealthy and Dell worked as a maintenance man for a uh, Merced area food cannery company, they figured ransom was not the motive for the abduction. Uh, many of the roads out of Merced uh, could have taken Stephen anywhere south to L.A., east to San Jose, and San Francisco, as well as north to Sacramento or Oregon. So, you know, to start looking I mean- without leads... He could be anywhere. Probably, and yeah, it's extremely overwhelming. In a car, you know, it's just... Right, so... It's it's terrifying, honestly. As a parent myself, who uh, is about to have another child on Monday, it is a, a scary fucking thought. Yeah, man, if Bogey went missing, dude, I would lose my shit. It's not a baby. that's your child. I understand yeah. that feeling. But, yeah. Uh, so we've just been through so much by now. So... The because of uh, you know the huge area to search, the police began to canvass the area where Stephen would walk home from school, but talking with residents turned up nothing. Then a terrible thought came into the Stainers' heads: if ransom was not the motive, then it had to be sexual. Police began pulling the records uh, of every known sex offender in the area and interviewing them. Uh, flyers with Stevens' photos, uh, photo were distributed, and eventually the police were uh, they they put out a message on the National Law Enforcement System's teletype, uh, saying, "Boy missing. Please call if located. Please call if any homicide victim matches our description." So, by uh, Christmas, 1972, Stephen in uh, is in a remote cabin with Ken and his friend. Stephen guessed they were in Yosemite. He had this idea because his paternal grandfather lived nearby. Stephen fucked. I mean, yeah, so sucks, Stephen assumed he was in a somewhat uh, somewhat populated area because he was kept under constant supervision, so no one would become known of his presence there. The first night in the cabin, Ken sodomized Stephen. When Stephen fought back and resisted, Ken told him he didn't submit. Uh, if he didn't submit, he would kill him and bury him, so no one would ever find him. Uh, and so- honestly. He could have easily done that in Yosemite because after reading these two books and realizing... If anybody's familiar with Yosemite, yeah, it's a vast... It's like 1,900 acres or something. It's like... No, it's like 1,900 square miles. Like, it's fucking Yeah, okay. Yeah, you could easily step away from the car and get lost. 
for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just like rugged terrain. It's not like a smooth, you know, like it's crazy. Right. So soon after Christmas, Ken decided they needed to move on. He quit his job as a bookkeeper at the Yosemite Lodge. Uh, he packed Stephen and a little dog he had given him, Queenie, uh, no, into the van, and they left, uh, left the park one last time. Ken told Stephen his name is Dennis now, and Ken is his new father. So he is expected to call him dad at this point. Which is just so psychologically scary, yeah. dude. Like, goddamn. So, as time went on, Dennis uh, became more acclimated to his new nomadic lifestyle with his new dad. Ken and Steven would travel around California. While Ken lo- uh, looked for work, he'd usually find odd jobs to do. Uh, his old life in Merced was starting to dim, and the usual sexual assault he saw as something that just came with the territory with his new dad. So I think, honestly, that's the scariest part of it. Like, that's the saddest part, that he was like, oh, this is just normal now. This is just what yeah. happens. So they ended up in uh, Ukiah. From there, they went to a smooth, uh, small north coast town called Noyo. I think that's how you say it. Here, Noyo place. Uh, Ken shacked up with a woman named Barbara and her five-year-old son. Altogether, they lived in a converted bus, and Barbara, uh, Barbara sold Bibles to make ends meet. During this time, Ken had enrolled... <laughs> a woman selling Bibles living with a child predator. That's that's on brand. Well, I don't have to get into how contradictory yeah. <laughs> it is. But during this time, uh, Kenneth enrolled Dennis uh, into a local school, and by all outward appearances, that was his son, and Ken was just a single dad trying to get by, really. So it looked, you know, it didn't look suspicious. Um, but for some reason, yeah, Dennis... I, just, I mean, it felt normal. Yeah, so Dennis felt compelled to keep his secret for Ken, and life went on this way for them for a while. Ken gave Dennis quite a long leash... Not to sound too indelicate, um, but I mean, honestly, uh, the leash probably grew longer and longer as he manipulated and grew, like, developed trust between him and this boy, knowing that he, and it's easy to yeah, be scared into, if you tell or, or run away, where are you going to go, dude? You don't know where the fuck you are. And... Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's conditioning the same thing yeah. with, you know, that fuckface yeah. Ariel Castro did with those girls. It's just conditioning them to be afraid to even attempt to leave is part of the whole manipulation. So uh, Dennis was allowed to smoke and drink at a very young age. He would also let Dennis come and go as he pleased uh, for the most part, Uh, which, like we said, develops trust. Uh, Eventually, Mm -hmm. though, Ken and Dennis had to leave the converted bus with Barbara and her son. They went their separate ways, and Ken and Dennis ended up in Manchester, California in a one-bedroom unelectrified cabin on the north coast not far from point arena Uh, dennis attended point arena high school he would still smoke and drink when he wanted to he got into a few fights here and there uh, a couple of brushes with the law but nothing too serious he'd go to school then he'd go home to the small cabin with his dad quote unquote and that was his routine it wasn't great but it was all he ever knew um dennis uh slash steven uh, was now 14 years old at this time. For some time, Ken had been talking about wanting to add to his family. Uh, on at least two occasions, Ken had taken Dennis to Santa Barbara to scout for a new son, quote-unquote. Uh, after a couple of failed attempts, Ken decided Dennis was not going to be a good partner for this. According to him, his heart just wasn't in it. Uh, Ken began to groom another teenager, a Ukiah high school boy, to help him with this task. February 14th, 1980, a rainy afternoon, five-year-old Timmy White was walking from his kindergarten class at Ukiah's uh, Yukayo Elementary School to his sister's house, which was only three blocks away. A gray van pulled up beside Timmy. A young man wearing running shoes and a ball cap got out and pulled him into the van. They forced sleeping pills down Timmy's throat, and the man behind the wheel started driving. After a while, the man with the ball cap got out, and the old man kept driving. The next thing Timmy saw was a school, and another young man got in the van. This man was Dennis. Dennis seemed surprised to see Timmy in the van. The van drove, and Timmy saw a remote cabin, and he didn't know where uh, he was. All he noticed was it was seemingly surrounded by 
untended pigs. So I guess yeah, so there was just like just loose feral fucking pigs swine running around. running around. Yeah. So the reason Parnell took Timmy was because Stephen would not stay seven years old forever. Uh, pedophiles are very particular with their preferences, and pedophilia is defined very specifically as well. <laughs> Corey mm-hmm. did a lot of research on pedophiles for the series. Uh, so yeah, I'm sure I'm on some sort of hand. like list right yeah. now with the NSA or something because I did a, a lot of reading on pedophiles. You're probably flagged for sure. You're you're oh yeah, IP they're tracking addresses. me again. So, <laughs> see, Parnell was a pedophile because his primary or exclusive sexual desire was directed toward prepubescent children. In his uh, in his case, prepubescent boys. Uh, pedophile and pedophilia. A, a quick are... side note about that yeah. is. Um, with pedophiles, typically, if they're into prepubescent children, they don't typically care. Like, if a straight man is into prepubescent children, he really doesn't care if it's a boy or a girl, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around. But I guess, I mean, I'm glad I don't understand it. But it is, it is the case with, I think, all of them, actually. They don't care about the gender as much. It's when it gets to, like... I would say it's more uh, maybe about... maybe it's more of just a control thing. It doesn't matter. It's just a young adult, a young child, boy or girl. It's just something you yeah, can manipulate exactly. and take advantage of and control for a minute. So because majority like of pedophiles are child sex offenders, they don't have the confidence or social skills to be with an adult. So they they spend most of their time around children. Right, right. Which um, I mean, I'm a school teacher. And I don't have any kids, so. What does it say about me? Well, it's different with you. <laughs> oh, thanks. Man. Now they're watching you too. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, <laughs> as you you know, basically described the difference between pedophilia and pedophiles, uh, but and uh, effa effabophile, a fee, a fee It's a hard one. It's a hard word. So that's someone whose primary or exclusive sexual interest is directed toward mid to late adolescent ages, 15 to 19. And hebophile... That's when they care about the gender. Yeah. Yes. And hebophile is someone whose primary or exclusive sexual desire is directed towards prepubescent children, ages 11 to 14. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, car models, depending on what year you like, uh, you know, like a donk. You're from uh, you. You mm-hmm. live in Texas. You know you know what a donk is. Like it's it's like a yeah. A, but I'm it's only really it's only a certain year. Analogies. Well, it's yeah. a certain year. Uh-huh. So like mm-hmm. if it's not within this year bracket, yep. then it's not a donk. <laughs> it's like another name. And that's how these pedophiles yeah. are. Like because they like it's... this group, they are called <laughs> this one and not the it's other a... one. Yep. It's kind of the same, that's... right? Yeah. Sure. That's Driving a... a car, fucking a kid, whatever. I... You know, tomato, tomato. Yeah, I mean, they're all pieces of shit, but yeah, no, I'm Yeah, the donk is a shit box up. for sure. So yeah, I, yeah. It's... Yeah, I mean, both sides of this argument suck. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just <laughs> felt like going on a rant and just kind of didn't know where it was going to go. So yeah, I see you started that sentence as like improv and you were just seeing what you could pick up along the way. Well, I saw the age groups and I thought that was interesting. So then I thought, you know, hot rods for some reason. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> <laughs> whatever majority I, mean, I guess it's better than well, thinking about kids <laughs> yeah yeah that's true so the majority of people don't even know what hemophilia or uh ephebophilia are right so they just use the blanket term pedophile basically uh but that's beside the point unless you're having mm-hmm. consensual yeah. sex with another adult if you're an adult then you're a fucker and we don't want you listening to the show <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Why would we not want them listening uh, to the show, though? If you're a hebophile or a febophile or a pedophile, I don't want you listening to the show. Get out of here. I'm saying, unless you're a consent, unless you're having consensual sex with another. No, adult, I get it, but I mean, you know, maybe continue. maybe having these people listen would like, you know, be like, hey, maybe I'm a fuckhead. I would feel, draw no, them in. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're into people, like, hey, this the is not the way. And, if you're into children, you're a fucker. Go get help, you know, and then come back and, you know, listen to the show. After. Absolutely. I mean, listen to the show while you're but getting now, help. now, fuck you. Have, yeah, have, I mean, I'll take the listens. Just have don't to tell me that you like kids. Order. 
Yeah, I just wanted to tell everyone the difference because I thought it was interesting. So basically, Steven was through puberty. He had grown out of his captor's pedophilic preference range. So I'm not trying to be like a I-know-everything guy. I just did a lot of research on pedophiles, and I wanted it to be accurate. So basically, if you're targeted by one of these adult men, uh, you just hope that you soon grow out of their age bracket (laughs) without being too fucked up. Like, you want to get through the experience... You know, as unscathed as possible, I guess. Like, hey, dude, I'm kind of fucked, you know, in this situation. Uh, so now I just, it, the only time will tell. I just got to make it to where this guy doesn't find me sexy anymore because I'm too old. Yeah, you just got to, like, maybe just annoy the shit out of him. That's a good thing. No, I think that's how you, you get killed. Do. They'll just kill you get rid of you. Yeah. I don't know, man. Um, but I will say really quick, if you're a parent listening to the show, you should read a book called Child Molesters, Child Rapists, and Child Sexual Abuse by Dr. Lynn Daughtry. Uh, and also listen or read the book called Into the Dark- In- Journey Into the Darkness by John E. Douglas. Uh, I've been reading these. And it gives you a lot of insight on how to keep your child from not victim blaming, but how to keep your child from being a victim because you make a confident child, you make a self-resilient child by parenting differently. And then because these these predators target uh, kids with low self-esteem because they can buy them gifts, give them attention to gain their trust. But if your kid is like, hey, man, fuck off, I don't need your shit then you know your kid won't be a target because these guys are just like regular rapists if there's any type of resistance they're usually gonna fuck off so i think in a, in a world that, that, that does solicit such violence i think every parent should have that book on their bookshelf it's kind of like a training absolutely guide, I think. yeah like no that. it's great uh, journey into the darkness is incredible johnny douglas is uh he was one of the the uh, the uh, agents who started the uh, the BAU the behavioral analysis unit mm. at uh, Quantico the FBI pretty great Mindhunter the show on Netflix is based off him. Interesting. If so, anyone from Scribed is listening, just fucking sponsors. I gave you guys like three goddamn shoutouts just now. So. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. so there was a lot of love in that. So I love the the app. It's great. So for the next couple of weeks, while the police were looking for Timmy. Stephen was the only one keeping Timmy company. Uh, Timmy had begged Stephen to help him get away from Parnell whenever he wasn't around. By this time, Parnell had cut Timmy's blonde hair and dyed it brown, so he looked completely different. Just as we saw with Ariel Castro and his captives, you start to get used to a situation, and the same had happened for Stephen. He honestly felt that he didn't even dislike Parnell, even though he had robbed him of a childhood. Uh, but when Steven saw Timmy's anguish and the effect the separation was having on him, it brought up those feelings Steven had had at the beginning of his captivity with Parnell. He also came to the real- realization that it was only a matter of time before Parnell began assaulting Timmy the same way he had done to Steven so many years ago. So as challenged as Steven may be and as manipulated as he may have been, he still had empathy and and it really... It really comes out here. So one night... No, Steven pa- is definitely like the the poster child for bouncing back for the most part as far as like resiliency and yeah. Then, yeah, he definitely has a lot of that. So one night when Parnell was working his, uh, his night job at the Palace Hotel, Steven agreed to help Timmy escape. They set out a couple of times, uh, but it turned back because of the heavy rain. Uh, But the final time, they were hitchhiking, and after being passed by several cars, Stephen decided if the next car doesn't stop, they'll go back to the cabin. But the two boys on the side of the road were excited to see a pickup pulled over to pick them up, and this truck took them all the way to Ukiah. So on March 1st, a few hours before midnight, the officer sitting in the Ukiah Police Department looked up at the glass doors and saw a small boy standing there. Officer Robert Warner didn't initially recognize Timmy. But as he got up to the go to the door, Timmy ran away. When Officer Warner looked out the door, he saw Timmy run to the corner where he saw an older boy standing and watching. Warner sent out a patrol, and before long, both the boys were in the police department. After Timmy calmed down, he told the officers who he was, and they were astounded he turned up like this. Timmy's mother and stepfather were called, who came down immediately. Upon seeing Timmy through his 
through the glass. He, uh, his mother didn't recognize him and claimed it wasn't him. But after further inspection, she realized it was, in fact, her son. But in all of the excitement of Timmy's return, they didn't even think to ask the other boy who he was. So I think that's interesting, too, because it shows that cutting his hair and dyeing it, that like how Parnell did, was smart on his part in a fucked yes, up way it because clever. it worked. Even the parents didn't recognize him. Yeah. But that's what's weird about Steven, too, is not weird, but I think it's somewhat noble, but also somewhat naive that when he went there to give them give timmy to the police he didn't even try to be like hey i need to go back to my family too he was just prepared to drop him off and go back to to parnell like he was just like whatever i'm just gonna help this kid and i'll just live my life as a fucking you know as dennis right so shortly after midnight on march 2nd merced uh Lead Detective Bill Bailey received a call from Ukiah Police Department saying he had a boy named Stephen who was claiming he was a missing person from Merced seven years ago. This didn't floor Bailey as you expect, as you would expect, but uh, a missing person from seven years ago just falling into your lap would make any detective working on a case for so long jump out of his chair. Uh, but Bailey had been worn down by so many false leads and he had honestly didn't have a lot of hope for this one. So at first, Bill Bailey didn't believe it was true. But when the Ukiah PD started going over everything, Bailey realized there there were too many uh, similarities uh, to not have someone go check it out. So in the middle of the night, Bailey called detectives Pat Looney and Jerry Price to go to Ukiah to check it out. Looney and Price drove four hours to Ukiah. They both figured in there the was no way it night, was Steven. I'm sure they were pissed. Yeah, so they didn't think it was going to be him. He had to have been dead by now. Uh, but about uh, at about 10 in the morning, they called Bailey. Looney said, you won't believe it. It's him. It's Stainer. He looked just like the boy on the flyer. But not only did he look like the boy, he knew his street, his mother and father's name, and even his second grade teacher. This was Steven Stainer, all right. And he was finally going to be go, going going home. So I have chills right now, dude, because that's amazing. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. Seven years dude thinking your child is dead and he's gonna be able to fuck well the parents don't know yet but you know what i mean exactly so naturally the police were wondering where steven had been all the years and how he came upon timmy white he had been with parnell the whole time so he did have some kind of loyalty to him and he didn't want him to get into any kind of trouble by steven's logic parnell was dad the only dad he could really remember he also remembered that Parnell had told him his parents didn't want him and couldn't afford him, so they sent him away with Parnell. Stephen's logic was he had rescued Timmy. Parnell didn't do anything like he had, like he did to Stephen to Timmy. So Parnell should just be left alone, no questions asked, in his <laughs> mind. You know, like but obviously, that's right. not going to happen. <laughs> so, obviously, it was not going to go that way at all. Ukiah Police Chief David Johnson decided to question Stephen. Finally, Stephen gave up Kenneth Parnell. Johnson said he gave him the name reluctantly. He genuinely thought this man was his father and didn't want to get him in any kind of trouble. But he was in trouble. He was in a lot of fucking trouble. Since Parnell was working as a night bookkeep at Ukiah's Palace Hotel, it wasn't long before he was apprehended and put behind bars. (coughs) Excuse me. The police had their own problems with convincing Stephen that his family did actually want him, and they had been wondering where he was all of these years. So Sunday afternoon, Looney and Price drove Stephen back to Merced, where he was greeted by 500 friends and family welcoming him home. One person particularly happy to see Stephen was his older brother, Kerry. Kerry had been on his way back from a camping trip at Yosemite when he heard the news on the radio. He said he almost drove off the fucking road. So you know it's it's interesting about like uh the the friends and you know like the banners and stuff and I don't remember if I read it in a book or if I saw it on something but they said that it's good to have that but like for that day like you want to take that shit down uh because you kind of want them to go back to a normal life and having that stuff up kind of just reminds them of the awful times they had you know right I thought that was an interesting psychological 
thing about people being returned home after a traumatic thing like that. Yeah, it's interesting. So, Stephen is back home in Merced. He's in a house with structure and boundaries now, something he hadn't had to endure for the last seven years. So he was going to have to adjust. And anybody with a, uh, uh, a mental disability, uh, you know, uh, autism comes up a lot in one of these situations where transition and change are highly difficult. And if you go from an environment where you know n- like zero structure and then you are just introduced to structure, like it's, it can be challenging for the, the individual and caretakers or parents. It's just... It's it yeah, be definitely. It's kind of like when you go from you know being a nineteen-year-old doing what you want to being in the military. Right. I mean, it's you're not coming from a traumatic thing going into you know life again, but it is somewhat of a culture shock because it's like, holy fuck, I can't do what I want anymore. Yeah, you got to so. change the way you operate, and the way Stephen operated was, you know, he did what he wanted. He smoked. He drank. He cussed. You know, he was taking care of himself for the most part while uh, Fuckhead was working. So, but in their eyes, he was a 14-year-old now who was fairly headstrong and independent. Stephen was now somewhat of a celebrity. The same thing we saw with the girls kidnapped in Cleveland by that bass-playing fuckface. And what's weird, too, about the parents of Stephen is because in their eyes, he was 14, but in their minds... He's still their seven-year-old. You know what I mean? Because that right. was the last time they saw him. So it's it's an adjustment for them as well. Have you seen that TV show? And I, I'll admit I haven't watched it through. I've only seen it for the first few episodes, maybe the first season. But that show, Manifest. No, I haven't. Never heard so of it. So basically, these people get on this flight. They go, they fly, and then they time travel. Well, they don't realize it. When they land... People were like, what the fuck are you doing here? And basically that plane was missing for like five years. Oh, shit. But they felt like they, you know, they flew, they took off and they landed. No big deal. But yeah, when they, yeah, when they landed, it was five years later. So like, you know, a couple of the, uh, there was a, uh, one of the main characters, a small boy, but none of them aged. Right. So he was still mm-hmm. like seven or eight years old, five years later. So like his twin sister was fucking 12 or 13 something shit like weird. that weird and he's still fucking seven or eight yeah so, that's weird no i've never heard of that yeah so I, but it reminded me of that because yeah when when he comes home he's still like they they lost all that time like they that you know time kind of stopped when their boy went missing so yeah for them but steven's life continued more or less and then when he comes back they're like they want to make up for lost time, but it's like this kid's completely different now. Yeah. He's not even the same. It's kid like anymore. uh it's like adopting uh what's that character from uh Roger Rabbit, like that baby that wears a diaper, he's got like a five o'clock shadow and he smokes cigars. Yeah, and he's got the fucking cigar. <laughs> yeah, 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 that he's guy. Always like Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kinda like that. Yeah. That's what you've Except that, a lot what... less funny here. Right. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Because he was like raped and molested. Yeah, so, okay. yeah. valid. So, Stephen's family had to adjust too, of course. Their little boy was frozen in their mind as a seven-year-old, but in their eyes, he was 14. Uh, So, they did uh, did a talk show circuit. They released books and other things. This was similar. The merchants and townsfolk of Ukiah gave Stephen a $15,000 reward for the rescue of Timmy. Pretty nice little hefty chunk of change there. Yeah. When asked what he was going to do with that money, Stephen said he was going to buy a fucking motorcycle. Hell yeah. Fuck yeah, bro. So, I was going to say grip it and rip it, but it was so sexually suggestive for this episode. So Yeah, maybe don't. Because yeah. he probably gripped, gripped it some and ripped stuff it. similar to a handlebar a couple yeah. times. Anyway. Forcefully. So let's go back to yeah. Kenneth let's Parnell do, for a uh, second. Parnell. <laughs> yeah, so Parnell was Parnell born in 1931. In a small town in Texas near Amarillo, uh, if you're not familiar with that part of Texas, it's the Panhandle and it's a dust bowl. There's very small towns and it's a lot of cattle farms and 
And they, they like do. sticky rice, which is weird. I don't get that. Well, so when Kenneth was seven, he and his mother moved to Texas, uh, moved from Texas to Bakersfield, California, where they lived in poverty. Kenneth they be, uh, then began to show self-destructive tendencies. At the age of eight, he shined a light into his eyes for so long he damaged <laughs> his fucking vision. On another Kids are occasion, fucking stupid man. Yeah. Kids do stupid shit. <laughs> so on another occasion. Uh, he pulled, uh, he tried to pull some out, uh, some of his teeth out and another time he attempted to commit suicide. So that one's at, a little more severe. <laughs> yeah. So at the age of 13, he was lured into a car by an older man and sexually assaulted as World War II was coming to an end. Cause this was a while back. Uh, mm-hmm. Parnell began a series of sexual relationships with older men. He even got into some trouble a few times for stealing cars and setting fires. Uh, it kind of sounds like he had all the ingredients to make a person who is going to kidnap a seven-year-old and keep him as a sex slave for years to come. Yeah, I would say that. So, but it makes yeah. sense. Parnell was deprived of his own father. He felt worthless and got the attention he craved from older men. Uh, this is probably the way he mm-hmm. thought Stephen felt when he kidnapped him. A psychiatrist, Dr. Richard D. Lowenberg, uh, who treated Parnell in his mid-teens, said Parnell had developed a peculiar tendency to search for trouble and punishment. Now, you may know, you probably definitely know the answer to this. Would that be something that a child would do similar to, like, a dog? To just, like, they'll be bad just to get any kind of attention? Oh, those are definitely... Uh, whether you're neglected <coughs> or, or abused, your behavior is often going to be attention-seeking. So if he's not getting Whether the love and support from attention. his, yeah, but he's not getting love and support from his parents, uh, especially his father, then he's going to behave in a way that gets any kind of attention from anyone because any right. attention is better than zero attention. Uh, it, when you're talking about uh, human development and the way our psyches uh, process and uh, receive love and attention and all that other shit. So, yeah, if you don't feel special... Well, that kind of goes back to what we said earlier about kids having self-esteem and, you know, shit like that, right? Yeah, that's why positive feedback, you know? Uh, yeah. We've talked about it before, maybe, but, like, uh, you know, like, you don't want to you don't want to seek out punishment for negative behavior. You've got negative and positive consequences. So if there's a negative behavior, you've got positive reinforcements or negative reinforcements to counteract that. So, whether they're say, let's say it's a negative behavior in a classroom, a kid is talking out. Well, a negative consequence would be a you're going to ignore it, and all the other students are instructed to ignore it. But you take away, uh, you either take away something the kid wants and wants to work for, or you put something in place like detention. That's a negative consequence. That's a that's a negative reinforcement. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you something idea, negative right? to make you motivate yourself to change your behavior. And that's bad. No, that's good because they're still getting attention. Oh. You're just kind of, you know, you're, you're the adult kind of controlling the environment. Like I know that you I want you to act this only way. Positive reinforcement. Yeah, no positive negative. Don't pay attention to negative. Negative reinforcements are still good. So positive reinforcements are like adding something that, they want and promotes better behavior. And then a negative reinforcement would be taking something away or putting something uh, non, non-desirable uh, on the table in order for them to change their behavior so that you can take it away and they're, and they're happy again. Like lunch detention. That makes perfect sense. You act, yeah. you act right. I'll take that away. No big deal. Or if you're, you know, point systems. You know, you lose points, you add points, whatever. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you're... So you think he sought out the attention of other or of adult? Absolutely, men he didn't feel special. He, he wanted had no he, like, attention yeah, it, from his family. What I mean, I don't want to generalize because I know nothing of the of the profession, and I'm going to sound like a dickhead for saying it. But it's like it's like being a hooker. It's you know you, you okay. the attention you did not get, the love and support that you needed when you were developing at a younger age. Uh, you're you now getting male attention, um, even if it's not always desired. It is attention that you are getting. Now we're not saying being or a, a sex worker is bad. We I support. No, sex if you workers, choose to do that, yeah, man, it's free market. It's bro, go out there and sell your ass on the corner. Works. I don't care, but it, it it stems from a psychological 
issue. No one, yeah, no one absolutely. nurtured and uh, d- developing in a loving, supportive home filled with the appropriate scaffolding is going to want to turn to prostitution, statistically. Unless you're yeah, trying to just rebel against your tight ass family, so. Yeah, that's why a lot of that shit happens in terrible neighborhoods because those kids are brought up around it in the first place. So it's just. Well, yeah, and, and like you said, like, you know, he, his parents were po- impoverished, so, you know, he grew up in poverty, uh, and that's where it's not just poor people commit crimes, it's just poor people uh, do not have that love and support, uh, and direction is not always scaffolded in a way that's going to direct them in a positive manner, but... Yeah, right. that's we we talk about that every time we talk about anybody we talk about because that's a that's an important fundamental thing that we need as humans oh, to it's be always, decent yeah. human beings. So it's always involved in their childhood, some type of neglect or abuse or just some traumatic thing that happens. Right. So it was determined Kenneth Parnell had what most psychopaths have: the ability to see what others want from them and manipulate those people by doing those things. He did this best with children and less intelligent adults. Parnell presented himself as a seemingly kind, reasonable, and mature adult, and the people he manipulated believed him fully. He was an expert manipulator, as we've seen time and time again with these typical types of fuckers. So, grooming. He's fucking grooming. He's good at grooming young or uh, uh, young adults, even including those with uh, mental uh, disabilities. Yeah, he was very so. manipulative and or learning disabilities. He I guess he didn't give a fuck if he was hurting people in the process because he was a psychopath. Right. Well, so you know, he had a bad relationship with his mother. Doctor Lowenberg came to the conclusion that it's likely that Ken's mother would wish her son would run away and never fucking come back. That was soon to be a reality because at eighteen, Ken met a girl from Bakersfield whom he had met in high school. They had a daughter together but their marriage was not uh, to last very long. Uh, But just because Kenneth had a relationship with a woman, had a daughter, and was living a somewhat normal life there for a minute, he still had some very dark temptations and desires that himself uh, could not even understand. Uh, And we see that in um, John Wayne Gacy. You know, he was, you know, he was married. He did birthday parties and shit. You know what I'm saying? Oh, John Wayne Gacy is the perfect picture of him and BTK are the perfect like picture two lives. of like. Well, that yeah, and, uh, they were great at it. Even um, Ted Bundy. I mean, he tried to get into politics. He was living this mm-hmm. separate life for a while. But that's so. the thing is, I think with people like Gacy and uh, fucking Dennis Rader, I think the two life thing, the lying to their family and being like oh, they think I'm this great guy, but I'm, like, fucking killing people. I think it's part of their arousal. You know what I mean? That, like, because they love to get one over on people. They love to manipulate. Yeah, and well, it's part of the chase. Yeah. You know? Like, so, in March of 1951, he acted on on these desires, basically. Pretending to be a police officer, which is a very common ruse, Kenneth Parnell kidnapped an eight-year-old boy from Bakersfield. Again, with Gacy, we saw this with, with Gacy and Jerry Brudos, who we haven't covered yet, but will. I have uh, The Lust Killer by Ann Rule. Uh, but anyway. I I'm fucking gonna... love Ann Rule, man. Dude, so good. She wrote The Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy, how she like worked with him. At you... the... Yeah, like Ann Rule, like before she was a true crime author, she worked Suicide Hotline with Ted with Bundy. With Ted Bundy. Dude, imagine being yeah. into true crime and finding that out and being like, now nah, I'm going to be this fucking best-selling author and shit. It's amazing. Well, I don't even know if she was into it then. Maybe she was reading it, but she wasn't writing at that point, I don't think. Because I think The Devil Beside Me was her first book. I yeah, could Stranger, be Stranger Beside Me was her first book, the one about Ted Bundy, but then she just, she just went on from there. Right. I feel like in hers, and we've talked about him, so I don't want to get too much into it, but yeah, basically she was coming to work and seeing that his behavior changed and the days he took off, girls were coming up missing. So yeah, it also, but it's, 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 we've done Bundy. Go listen to Bundy if you want to yeah, hear yeah. I would like to visit it again after reading a book to make, you know, more details and stuff. We'll get into that. But anyway, 
Um, this is a common ruse that these fuckers use. So what I say, if they're not in a cop car, not wearing a uniform, and they're a fat, stinky loser like Brutus or Gacy, just you know, ask for a badge number or something. You, you can you can even call the dispatch office and ask if they have an officer by the. Well, no, because then I guess you're reaching for your pocket. Yeah, fuck, I don't know. Um, but you know, you know, I've heard, I've never been uh, in a situation where I felt like I was in danger, so I didn't make the judgment call, but. You know, the, the, every now and then you'll hear the PSAs that tell uh, women, men, uh, like if you're getting pulled over by an unmarked vehicle, like do not pull over until you pull into like a well-lit populated parking yeah, lot or in front of a house. Yeah, you can call and ask, yeah. you know, but that's another thing. I yeah, yeah, say. call it in, make sure that you have a unit, you know, right there. So Yeah, if you're in a secluded area too, like if you're out in the country and you're getting a cop flips their lights on you. You can put your hazards on and keep driving until you get to a well-lit area. And in that time, right. you can try to call, you know, dispatch and, you know, be like, hey. Is Just hope fucker? that it's not a real cop who's getting pissed off every fucking mile that you keep driving. So he's <laughs> going to, like, don't let speed you have up. it when you pull over. Don't, like, fucking Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, yeah, turn your hazards on, drive below the <laughs> drive speed normal. limit. But, yeah, yeah he's like, probably going to be a little irritated. Like, what the fuck? Dude? Yeah, dude. But, hey, man, better <laughs> safe than sorry. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, you're talking about his dis- the dispatch. Yeah, you can call dis. I was just saying you can call dispatch and be like, "Hey, is this officer in this area, or do you have one that is on this road?" And they'll be like, "Yes or no," right. and then, you know you got your answer. But yeah. So anyway, Parnell, yeah, he kidnapped this boy. Yeah, yeah. So Parnell kidnapped this boy, took him outside of town, and sexually assaulted him. Parnell later admitted he thought of killing the boy to conceal his crime. Again, very common among predators who hurt children. I've been reading a few books, a lot, like I said. Um, unless the perpetrator is, sadi- is a sadistic child murderer, which is a category, uh, they only kill the child to conceal the crime. A sadistic child murderer, though, is just that. They get sexual pleasure out of hurting the child. But from what I've read, sadistic child murderers aren't very common. There's a whole, like, there's a bunch of statistics, but I'm not going to do that because i don't want to bore people to sleep and make them fucking crash their car or anything so we'll save it maybe i'll post it on the story on instagram or something but anyway i digress so after parnell was caught he was labeled by his doctor dr lowenberg a sexual psychopath which i think we can all agree is an accurate observation uh so parnell who was yeah, so he's quickly convicted, uh, sent to San Quentin State State Prison for a four-year stint. Uh, he was released for the first time in 1955, but Parnell violated his parole and was returned to San Quentin and released again in 1965. Parnell decided to get out of con- uh, California and move to Utah. Uh, well wandered over to Utah, I guess, um, more so. So uh, he was sort of a drifter. So he just kind of yeah, which on is that the way. worst kind of person. But he was picked up again in 1960 for holding up a gas station. Uh, This time, Parnell was sentenced to five years to life uh, at Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah. In 1967, Parnell was released, uh, but told he had to leave Utah within 48 hours and never come back. Damn. Imagine being banished from an entire state forever. He's never going to see the horseshoe thing. Yeah. Horseshoe rock. So, horseshoe rock or horseshoe bend? I don't know. What is it called? Horseshoe Bend? Because that's... Horseshoe Bend is in Arizona. Oh, well, okay. I, you know, Horseshoe Bend is on the Arizona side, I believe. Yeah. I well, whatever. I have been there he, a few times. He can't see <laughs> You never know when you're driving across the state line. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. So, the fact that Parnell could not ever return to Utah was not going to stop his further deviant plans, of course. He met a rather small night janitor at the Yosemite Lodge in California. He used his manipulation skills... Uh, that we mentioned earlier to entice the man to help him get Stephen Stainer into his van. When Stephen told his story, uh, he spoke of this man as the man who asked Stephen if his family would like to make a donation to his church. This was the ruse used by Parnell to get Stephen in the first place. So, when being questioned by Looney and Price, Stephen was easily able to recall this man. He said he was barely five feet tall, smoked Normal constantly, night. and he worked as a janitor at the Yosemite Lodge. Without hesitation, Stephen was able to point to this man's photo when showed a series of photos of Lodge employees. So, I mean, 
What an impression. If it didn't take much for him to remember your ass. Yeah, seven years and a lot of trauma later. Yeah. So Price and Looney went to Yosemite where they arrested the man without incident. The small man actually expressed relief when caught. This was the only crime he'd ever committed in his life, and it was weighing on his conscience this entire time. Thank God it's over. I'm glad that kid is safe, is what he said. He told Price and Looney, and he had confessed he hadn't talked... He hadn't talked to Parnell since 1973 when Parnell was asking him for money. And he had no idea where Parnell was for the past seven years. What a piece of shit. Hey, commit this horrible, awful atrocity with me, but also I'm going to ask to borrow fucking money from you later on. Like, dude, hasn't he done enough for you? So it's nothing to say Parnell is a piece of shit. He's a monster and clearly a psychopath. But something odd about Parnell is that he wasn't your run-of-the-mill child predator. Parnell wanted something more from Stephen than just sexual gratification. And actually, child rapists, uh, which would be different from child molesters, was what Parnell was. And that's the rarest form of child predator. Most are child molesters who use different tactics to prey on insecure and lonely children. But Parnell was different. He forced sex onto Stephen, which again... uh, is rare if that's any type of relief for any parents that listen to the show. I mean, if it's so rare, then I mean his manipulation skills aren't that sharp. Because well, it's just rare think because the kid would want it if he was charming enough or, well, or smooth enough, I guess, for it, lack of a better word. It's not that he well, no child wants sex. So if you're forcing sex on a child, it's obviously against the child's will. But what I'm saying is. Predators who seek out rape on a child is more rare than someone who just, like, touches the child. them and becomes friends with them and molests them. Yeah, and, like, makes them touch them. And, you know, that's the most common type. Right. Um, So, uh, Parnell wanted... uh, some. Well, he wanted to be something he had never had, a father, a role model, and someone to look up to. Uh, But... With his fucked up mind and obvious repulsion of women, yeah, because if you see him, get this. He looks like a pile of dog shit. So he could he could not get this by just meeting a woman and getting her pregnant, like almost all people would do. And we say almost all because there are that small percentage of fuckers like this. Yeah, more than we think (laughs) are out there. It's right. So because regardless of wanting a family, Parnell was a child predator before anything else. So if his sexual needs uh, that he desired from a child were not met, he would not have been able to resist this even if he made his own family. Yeah, basically it would have either been Steven or it would have been his own kids. So, uh, which is a whole other type of molest. Right. So within a few weeks of their arrest, Parnell and Murphy were uh, going to be charged with the kidnapping of Stephen Stainer and Timmy White. Obviously, Murphy would only be charged with Stephen's kidnapping because he had nothing to do with the kidnapping of Timmy. Uh, The trials were moved to Oakland, California, because the defense lawyers of the two men determined they would never get a fair trial in Ukiah or Merced. What do you mean? Were the people mad about it? Were people in the towns upset? So Parnell was looking at seven years for Timmy's uh, Timmy's kidnapping, but under some strange California law, uh, he would only be able to serve twenty additional months for the kidnapping of Stephen Stainer, which, which is fuck, twenty additional months for Stephen Stainer. I don't like, he had Stainer mostly, and he did the most fucked up shit too. I do not. Steven, yeah, so. I can't understand it. So this. Weird law would also cause Murphy, who was constantly portrayed by the defense lawyers as an innocent dupe to Parnell, um, would serve more time for the kidnapping of Stephen. Parnell eventually was sentenced to five years for Stephen's kidnapping, less time than he had uh, than he had Stephen posing as his own son. Which is fucking so. disgusting, and it's, it's unbelievable the lack of justice that was given to Stephen. Well... Honestly, you know, you know, of course, this was long before Casey Anthony, but, you know, in my lifetime, once I saw Casey Anthony walk free, I was like, oh, yeah, the justice is a fuck. No, it's <laughs> like, fucked, dude. This, dude. And this is just, shit, like, dude. less yeah, time no than he had him. I mean, I would have been like that one dad who, did you, you ever seen that video of the dad? He, the, 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 there was a guy that, the guy had killed, uh, raped and murdered his, like, 
young son and the dad was chilling in the courthouse pretending he was at the phone the like phone thing booth i don't know what you call it the ones on the wall and uh fuck turns around shoots the fucking dude dead right there in the courthouse no it's fucking incredible dude i love it it's fucked jesus i like that though yeah i love revenge it's um but let's go back to so Steve. right so let's go back to him uh steven had a strange relationship with his family eventually he would keep them at arm's length he tied himself up with uh with tv and his motorcycle of course he never had any close friends I like after how you his return threw, of to course Merced. in there because you can relate to loving your motorcycle so much. Uh, why wouldn't you want to tie yourself up with your motorcycle, bro? No, I tie myself up with my motorcycle all the damn time. It's great. No, it's so wonderful. You can ride the shit out of it. I mean, it would be yeah, his downfall. So it, it probably helped. Like for me, our experiences are different, obviously. Very. <laughs> but riding 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 a motorcycle is can is is pretty therapeutic. Man. Yeah, it's relaxing. So Lean in your face. So he probably found a lot right. of comfort in it. And you're being reckless, you know. And he's you know he's down a path where. Oh, he, he was probably very reckless. Needs to be reckless to feel whatever, but yeah, it's also comforting because you know you're doing I was, something you uh, like to do anyway. A few years ago, when I had my motorcycle still, I would say this, and then we'll get back. I was uh, riding it, going probably about sixty miles an hour, and uh, a fucking yeah. you know what a June bug is, right? Yeah. Hit me on my fucking shoulder, like the soft spot between your shoulder and like your collarbone right here. Straight up felt oh, yeah. like I got shot with a fucking paintball or something. That shit hurt so bad. Dude, I've been hit with a bug in my full face mask, my my helmet, mm-hmm. uh, where where you're you it, it hits, it's loud, you can hear it over the motorcycle, <laughs> and and your head goes back a little yeah. bit. Like it's like, it's like, like you got hit in the head with like a like a like, like a, a ping pong, pong really hard. Like a, like a ping yeah, pong like, ball. Bah. Yeah, dude. Yeah, That's... dude. Anyway, so. Yeah, so he had never had any close friends after his return. Uh, he said in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, he shied away from people because every male friend he ever had uh, as Dennis Parnell uh, would make sexual advances toward. Which is not um, surprising. Yeah, dude, you don't want to be a target anymore. So Stephen did eventually meet a girl. He did get married, and he had children of his own, which is miraculous, man. So Stephen... Dropped out of high school his senior year. He said school was hard because he was often reminded of what he had gone through because he was still and always going to be the kid who got kidnapped, of course. I mean, it's, I'm sure that's it's hard to to make friends when everybody knows you as the kid that got kidnapped. And, so and it's also... He it's, said outside of... It's, it's also fucked school up that because... Was, outside of school that he was better. Yeah, it's also fucked up because he, he was in like the Mormon community and they're fucking super christian whatever you want to call them right uh all the kids at school would tease him that he was gay because he was raped by a man and in their weird logic that makes you gay as in he was like accepting it which yeah like yeah someone made you gay like that that grown man made you gay you're gay now yeah well fuck those kids so now Steven uh, has a family, yeah. he has a job, and a cool motorcycle. So I guess it's all going to work out, right? Happy ending coming up here? Well, not quite. <laughs> so two months after the made-for-TV movie about Steven, known as I Know My Name is Steven, uh, it aired. Steven drove his motorcycle broadside into a car who had pulled out in front of him when he was leaving work. Uh, he was killed instantly. So when Stephen died, Parnell had been out of prison for two years at this point. Fucking horse shit! I hate it. I hate. Isn't that crazy. You survived that. It's like it's like seeing these vets that survive like, you know, two or more tours over in Iraq. They come over and like they die in a car wreck or you know they're hit by a car. Or, you know they choke on a sandwich. Like the the yeah. craziest shit. Exactly. It sucks. So. It's awful. Um, but I will say. Uh, not to change the subject too much, but uh, I know my name is Steven is a great title for that movie because he was called Dennis for so long. So whoever thought of that, uh, that's yeah. awesome. Sucks that it was made for TV, but I get it. Probably came on like LMN or Lifetime or something like that, I'm sure. But I mean, that's anyways, two months after it um, came out. Like he died two months after it was aired. So it's very possible that it aired and just all of these memories and emotions just came back. Like yeah, I'm sure he got more reckless. He just didn't, and, uh, 
Yeah, I'm not saying he intentionally ran into that car that pulled out in front of him, but he probably, yeah, like you said, he probably rode a little more reckless. He was a little stressed out, wasn't paying it. He was too much, uh, you know, stuck on, you know, what the fuck is going on with his life again. And when you're on a motorcycle going, you know, and people around you aren't watching for you, you're complacent. Your chances of making it home are, are, are extremely slim. And dude. not only that, it's not like a car where you slam on your brakes and you'll just slide a bit. If you slam on your brakes too hard on a motorcycle, you're going sideways and you're laying that fucker down. Like, that's Yeah, you get squirrely, physics. dude. I mean, they, they teach you. I mean, you should definitely learn emergency braking. But even, yeah. even that's not guaranteed to save your life if, if you don't have enough reaction time. And like I said, either he was too close to the car that pulled out or his mind was elsewhere because, you know, <clears throat> the media was, uh, you know, resurfacing all of this I mean, fuckery. Was, yeah, and from what I read, too, I didn't put it in here, but he wasn't too happy uh, with the movie. I don't. I think he said it was. Uh, it didn't portray him right. It didn't portray parnell right or i can't remember well exactly. a lot of these bios like they definitely they definitely don't we talked about it the other day you know because i finally sat down and finished waco oh, on so netflix good. if you haven't watched it watch it's it. so good but but like you said it really does portray um david koresh or you know fill in the blanks with any other bio that's you know aired it, it really kind of gives them a it makes him seem sensitive side. It makes him seem like a yeah, nice it, it, dude. It makes him seem like a good dude. Yeah, like, but no, I mean, David Koresh was a manipulator, and he and fucked children and forced them to marry he, him, and he's just a piece. I, of you shit. know, I don't, I don't. The, uh, he did marry that one fourteen-year-old girl, but I don't think he was fucking any of the other children, especially the ones that he was, you know, fathering. Right. I mean, he, but some of the women had had his baby, but I think he married her at twelve. Yeah, it was it was a bad deal. I think both we're going to cover Waco in the future. 1000% we're going to cover Waco, but for a quick analysis, I think the FBI ATF they fucked up and I think David Koresh fucked oh, up. Oh, absolutely. They bungled it. No lie about that. And not only did they bungle it, they bungled it to the point where uh then like i think it was like i don't know remember how many years later but on the day fucking dumbass timothy mcveigh blew up oklahoma city so yeah it was a it was a bungle that had withstanding you know repercussions right but anyway we'll cover waco in the future uh that's the end of this episode we're probably gonna have a couple more of this uh series because there's a lot more to cover that's all for steven stainer but we still got to talk about carrie stainer and all his fucked up shit so uh be sure to tune in next week when we do part two of this you can follow me on instagram at how the dad's chill you can follow johnny at johnny two jokes follow the show the chilling truth podcast uh, we're going to be having some shirts going up pretty soon. I made a couple of designs. Uh, I'll email them to you so you can uh, take a look. Let me know what you think. And uh, you guys cool. will be able to buy those pretty soon. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. Happy late holidays. Don't fucking drink and drive Happy on New Year's. Year, dude. Yeah. This Happy won't air until tomorrow, but um, I hope people don't drink and drive tonight. Yeah, dude, and Uber's 12 bucks, man. Get it together. Call AAA. They'll tow your car and your drunk ass for free. So there's really no excuse for your assholery. Yeah, this episode's been brought to you by USAA, where insurance includes uh, a free tow or a free ride. Does it really? Typically. That's incredible. I've never had a problem. I've had to get my car moved or get a ride a couple times in the past. Yeah, so pledge to our Patreon so Johnny doesn't have a shitbox anymore. Dude, I love my shitbox. I'm just kidding. Anyway, we'll catch you guys on the flippity flip. Later. Later.